Welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. I just want to thank uh, you for being in this room with us. You know, it's a joy to worship, to join you as you join us in worship. And I sense that God's presence is here as we are worshiping together. This is the day the Lord has made. We will be glad and rejoice in it. And we know we started just a little late, and that's because there were some hiccups, but we're here because God designed that we should be here right now for you. So thank you for being patient, and thank you for joining in in our worship experience. I just want to uh, pray God's blessing upon his word. So Father in heaven, we ask now that you will breathe your breath of life upon the words that Clay so beautifully read, that they may dance before our eyes and find meaningfulness in our lives, that we would leave this moment empowered to live for you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The message is entitled, The Water Where Borders Cross Over. The Water where borders cross over. The story that Clay just read fizzes with psychedelic sounds of languages as it culminates in water where borders cross over. It ends in water where borders get confused. Water that forms the whirlpool of lifestyles and life journeys of twists and turns and ups and downs and merry-go-rounds and borders that once marked the boundaries of enemy lines. Water and boundaries are confused, especially as they give way to the spirit of unseasoned joining, the joining of two unlikable characters, and the spirit of border crossing, where their paths not just meet, but join and cross crosses. We meet this ancient story at the end of a long story that started at the beginning of chapter 10 of the book of Acts, where an imperial warrior, a Roman centurion, if you please, makes an unseemly entrance. Unseemly because he is posted at 
the Roman headquarter military base of Caesarea, North Judea. But unseemly still, because centurion Cornelius is introduced by the Luke, the author, as a sympathizer of the Jews. Centurion Cornelius, a sympathizer of the Jews? <laughs> right there, you know you can't trust him, can you? How can you trust a colonizing imposter? whose credentials, centurion, means brutalizing overlord. He rules by terrorizing, traumatizing, and demonizing the natives. And yet he's called a friend of the Jews. The Jews, a people who are hounded and persecuted and tortured by his peers, how can he be a friend of the Jews? It's rather like saying, there was a man, a centurion Nigel Farage, a friend of the immigrants. Now, you could call him a friend of the Germans because he's married to one, but you can't call him a friend of the immigrants. Well, that's the kind of impact this reading would have had on the first readers of this text when they read this centurion, Cornelius, is a God-fearing man, a friend of the Jews. And so the story begins with the ultimate enemy of the Jews, a Roman centurion, posted at the ultimate symbol of terrorism, a military base in a city built to commemorate the ultimate hegemonic ruler, Caesar Augustus, on the ultimate consecrated grounds of Judea. And we are told, if you can believe it, that centurion Cornelius is a God-fearing sympathizer of the Jews. Well, Peter wouldn't believe it, and you can't blame him, can you? He despised these Roman impostors, these slave masters, like every other Jew did. However, God turned Peter's life earlier upside down, earlier at Pentecost. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, Pentecost, a few chapters before, was a game changer for Peter. God's spirit breathed through Peter's structured and settled life. God's spirit breathed through his people's structured and settled ways of living. A living that was pop propped up by prejudices and biases and, and, and presuppositions and assumptions. And God pulled everything apart. And suddenly what they thought they earned and what they thought they possessed for their individual selves, the Pentecostal love of God compelled them 
to share it fairly among themselves. And what's more dangerous, friends, than a group of people, a community that have discovered the power in sharing what they have amongst themselves? What is more powerful than that, yet more dangerous than that? My family experienced this when my father died earlier this year. And people just rallied around us. Our community, including the London Live community, rallied around us. And they shared what they had with us so that our mourning somehow could be persevered by the grace of God. I know husbands and wives who find it difficult to share what they have. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Hello, somebody. But here was a community where love played a trick on them. When they thought what they had was theirs, love told them, sell it, share it, and give it away. Nevertheless, while the gospel-loving community is distributing what they have amongst themselves, they just can't bring themselves to share it with others who don't look like them and who don't sound like them and who are not from the same place as them. Indeed, others that they deemed as their enemy. They can't share it with their enemy. Now, I can share what I have with my friends. I can even share it with my community. I could even share it with the old English lady who lives a couple of doors down the road from me. Who, with whom I share a few hellos now and then. I can share what I have with my community, but how can I share it with the likes of Centurion or Cornelius? How can I? And this was Peter's struggle. This was his community's struggle. No wonder Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts had, an, had another lesson to teach the gospel-loving community of chapter 10, that God's activity had moved on, and therefore it's time for God's people to move on. That God was now more busy outside of the church than inside of the church, and Peter had to go where God was busy. I know some of us are struggling with this idea that God is often busy, more busy outside of the church than he is inside of the church. A student of mine sat me down the other day and he was struggling with his church because they somehow in this time of lockdown, they couldn't find it within themselves to go where God was busy. He suggested the idea that they could use their building as a COVID testing center, but they wouldn't have it. He was even suggesting that they can use their own minibus, their brand new minibus, for the group who wants to distribute food to the locals, but they wouldn't have it. And he sat and he told me, but you know, Gifford, God is more busy outside of the church than he is inside of the church. 
And that's the story of the book of Acts. That God is more busy outside of the church and the church is constantly lagging behind in their reluctance to join in where God has already joined. That's what happens here in chapter 10. God was busy in the barracks and the household of Cornelius. Yes, he was. Way before the church even knew. And when God decided that it's time for the Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter to get involved and go where God had already joined, uh, God had to compel him and God had to persuade him because Peter didn't want to know. In fact, God had to knock Peter on the head, put him in a trance, make him hungry, and then show him a vision of unkosher foods and then tell him, eat it, just eat it. It's time for you to eat it. Peter said, no way. I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten unkosher food in my, in my life. Why am I going to start now? Did you know that God did this three times with Peter? And still, at the end of the third time, Peter said, no. God had to throw away this, 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 this uh, basket of food throw it away. And while he threw it away, Cornelius, at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, sent a number of people, a delegation, if you please, to Peter's house in order to persuade him to come over to, to Caesarea and share the gospel with him. Peter welcomed, him in his, welcomed them in his house, but would he go? He was reluctant to go. And even when he went, he was reluctant to share the word of God with them. And even while he was sharing the word of God with them, he did not notice that the Holy Spirit had already convicted their hearts. Peter didn't notice this. In fact, they had to speak up in tongues so that Peter can stop and notice and while they were speaking in tongues, in other words, manifesting the evidence that the Holy Spirit had convicted their hearts and lives, the people, the gospel-loving people of Peter got confused. And they said, this can't be. Peter noticed what was going on. And in that juncture, as Clay read, Peter said, what stops me from getting into this water with these people to baptize them? What stops me now? Because it's evident that they have the Holy Spirit. But friends, this bothers me and it disturbs me. I tell you why. Because the fact that Peter had to say, what's stopping me? from doing this, suggests that Peter and his gospel-loving friends went to Cornelius' house with no intention at all to join them. Think about that. He went with the gospel, but he had no intention to join them. I wonder why. 
Why is it that Peter and his friends didn't want to join Cornelius? Why is it that they went with the full intention of not enjoying, not joining these people, much less going in the water with them? Why couldn't they anticipate that the Holy Spirit was coming upon these Gentiles? I tell you why. Because they went to the same Bible study class as I did. Where they were taught that people have to look like us and be like us before they have the Holy Spirit. They have to believe in the same 28 fundamental beliefs. They have to worship on the same seventh-day Sabbath. They have, to, they have to eat kosher food before the Holy Spirit can come upon them. Well, this story teaches us, does it not? that our Adventist circumcision is not the seal of God. You didn't get that. Our Adventist circumcision is not the seal of God. Denominational, denominationalism, friends, is not the gateway to heaven. No, it's not. A second reason why they couldn't bring it to themselves to share, to, to accept that the Holy Spirit could fall of Gentiles, as was taught in my Bible study class, was this, and this is what I was taught, friends, in Bible study, that God doesn't get involved in politics. Centurion Cornelius is a representative of the Roman government. Yes, he is. He's a ranked officer of the empire. Yes, he is. Doing the bidding of Caesar all the time. Don't you know that, but don't you know that God's politics is to have us do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? But that was what Cornelius was doing. Read the text again in verse 1 of chapter 10 and you will see that Cornelius was doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God. The text says he was giving alms to the poor. Then the lesson ought to be, shouldn't it? Whether, wherever protests against injustices are, God already is. We, the people of God, ought to be where God is. Wherever protests against injustices are, where people are standing up for the weak, the poor, the disenfranchised, God's spirit is there. Maybe it's time for us to recognize that God is more busy out there in places where people are trying to stand up for the voiceless and for the marginalized, and for those who are just seeking equality like everybody else. But the third thing I was taught in Sabbath school was this. 
Cornelius and his friends were illegal immigrants, so God can't be with them. They are from Babylon, you see. And the Holy Spirit does not dwell in Babylon. You might think I'm playing the race card here, and that's okay. But many of us think that we shouldn't go to people if they don't have the right papers, the right qualifications, if they don't have the right history. In England, we say if they're not British, hello somebody, if they can't speak the right language, our language. These immigrants are taking our jobs, our housing. They're even taking our women. Uh, their presence is oppressive. They are people we don't like. It's interesting, isn't it? That people who come from privileged backgrounds, people who feel they have a sense of entitlement, uh, view equality as oppressive. <laughs> hmm. It seems then that the lesson that we should learn is this, that God can use the mighty and the lowly, the outcast and the incast, the foreigner and the citizen. God is no respecter of persons. Peter, God is busy outside of the church. London Live, God is busy outside of this church. You have to get in the water with these people. And when you do, your borders will be confused. When you do, your borders will cross over. But it doesn't happen until you get in the water with them. And I'm talking about the borders of, uh, uh, I'm talking about racial borders. I'm talking borders. I'm talking about religious borders. I'm talking about political borders. I'm talking about spiritual borders. When we get in the water with others, our borders cross over because we are one. So the water of the same spirit of liberty and transformation will be with you both as your bodies stand on the right side of God's history. What we need is courage. And so I say in closing, the Christian who has courage is one who has learned to desire the ones God wants them to desire and to live fully into the desire of God and therein discover a desire for people whom others are not desiring. I repeat, the Christian who has the courage is one who has learned to desire the ones God wants them to desire and to live fully into the desire of God and discover a desire for people whom others are not desiring. Therefore, my prayer is that God, may you show us the people whom we are resisting and show us the people whom we are denying daily 
that we may join whom you have already joined and experience the transformative water of border crossing. That as a people of God, we might be one with them and thereby be one with you. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com. Thank you.